0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome,
1: everyone. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Gerard Fankovic, and I'm a consultant advisor in the North America institutional business here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I'm pleased to introduce my colleague, Leanne Eidelman. Leanne's our portfolio manager within the emerging markets and Asia-Pacific equities team based in New York, and is a member of the group of global emerging markets portfolio managers that are responsible for our fundamental bottom-up portfolios, including GEM Discovery and GEM-focused strategies. We'll discuss our views on the emerging markets landscape, where it currently stands following the pandemic, and opportunities and risks. And with that, let's get to it. First up, Leon, thanks for joining today. Seems like an eternity ago, But can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing across the emerging markets equity universe at the start of 2020 as the pandemic hit? And then
0: any major differences in how the market looks today versus then? Hi, everybody. So you'll recall the start of 2020 was a relatively benign environment for EM. We certainly were quite optimistic about the opportunity set at the time. To fast forward a year, I would say three things have changed. The first one is obviously... Markets have moved quite meaningfully from then. And even then, within that, there's been significant bifurcation where some of the more tech-heavy elements of the emerging market universe have moved a lot. And so certainly from where we were a year ago, valuations are higher. The second is, and this is a slight negative, if you look at the response that emerging markets have had to have to the pandemic it's effectively been governments doing everything that they possibly can do within their fiscal constraints. And unfortunately, part of the emerging world you know, did not have the cushion that the developed world has had from a fiscal perspective. So from that angle, I think it's fair to say that the fiscal environment in certain countries across the asset class has somewhat worsened. And that is visible in FX values. And then the third change, which I think is quite positive, and this is really a continuation rather than just, you know, from last year to this year, but it's really this year to a year ago to two years to three years ago, is that the shape of the emerging market investment landscape continues to change. And I would say in a positive way where there is more emergence of new businesses that are effectively either closer to the consumer or adopting digital means for success, where at the end of the day, you've got businesses which are going to be disruptors becoming investable in a way which is closer to what you find in the U.S. equity market. And that trend has continued as some of these businesses get larger, as some of these businesses list. I perceive that to be possibly the most exciting angle to the emerging market story, in that you know, I think if we spoke three, four years ago, people would always ask the question, you know, is EM very commodity dominated like it used to be? And I think that over time, we're going to be talking about how EM is becoming a much more growthy asset class as some of these businesses emerge. And it's going to be less old school industrial than it used to be. So I would regard that to be a pretty positive change.
1: I would agree. I mean, every market's a little bit different in how they've reacted to the pandemic and vaccine, slightly different perhaps. How do you see the vaccine and the pandemic affecting EM differently than developed markets? You alluded to some of that, but are there other differences?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, you've got very wide variance in how successful both control of the pandemic and inoculations have been certainly you could put China very far ahead of the rest of the world in terms of going back to normal. Not everywhere in the world. Clearly, New Zealand's done a wonderful job. But in terms of large economies, they are well, well ahead. And speaking to businesses, speaking to colleagues, you hear stories about people going out to full restaurants, which sounds like a bit of a pipe dream here. So from that perspective, you know, their economies are back to normal and consumption is back to normal. I think for the rest of the emerging markets world, it's a bit more muddled where the pandemic has hit relatively hard. You've seen places like Brazil where, unfortunately, the death toll is very, very high. Places in Africa where we don't really know what the death toll is. But long story short, I think the conclusion is not dissimilar to the conclusion that we had when we did this a year ago, which is despite how awful the human toll will inevitably be, this will end and will come out of it. So I think it makes sense to look at how economies stand to fare. And and there, I would say that some of the impact that I was alluding to before around the fiscal spend has and will take a toll. So as a good example, we spent a lot of time talking about Brazil's fiscal reform last year and the year before that. And I think investors generally were very excited about the changes that the new government was bringing in in terms of bringing that debt sustainability back under control. You know, Brazil's debt load is not particularly sustainable over the longer term. And so here they had to go out and react to the COVID crisis. And the end impact from a fiscal perspective is that they've effectively undone the entirety of the reform that they had done. And therefore, Brazil is back to square one in terms of debt sustainability, which is, in short, unsustainable. And so, again, unsurprisingly, the currency has been quite weak. You know, I think you can extend that to other places like South Africa, where, again, the currency has been quite wobbly. The fiscal response is relatively constrained. And so, you know, for these places, I would argue the FX has been the best indicator of what's been changing on the macro side, given Mm -hmm. that, obviously, considering that a lot of the businesses themselves are still coming out of this pandemic, it's too early to tell how meaningfully changed longer-term consumption will be. My guess is that it's not going to be that changed, but most of the pain is going to be felt on the fiscal and government side.
1: That's helpful. It must have been made your job at least more interesting during the last year with the volatility. Can you talk a little bit about the interaction you've had with companies and done your research through the pandemic? Did it impact your process in any way?
0: So here, I think a couple of things. One, I think we've certainly benefited from having a very widespread team. You know, as I mentioned, speaking to colleagues in China, they're going back to the world is fine. And so I do have colleagues in Shanghai that I can rely on who are back to business as usual, or if they need to do a due diligence or a visit, it really hasn't been an issue. You know, Korea was very much under control up front. For those countries where it's been more difficult from an access perspective, I would say that people's behaviors have also shifted. So, you know, and as much as I think everybody's pretty burnt out from Zoom calls, I think the reality is that senior management at a lot of these businesses have found that they'd actually rather do a few targeted Zoom calls than take a full week out to do a road trip and visit investors. And so, interestingly enough, access to senior management has been better than it used to be. From a personal perspective, you know, I used to go out to Asia four or five times a year and spend a week. And I've now found that my working from home has got its pluses and minuses. But my schedule is one where I do very early meetings and very late meetings, and that works for me. And so I've been able to maintain contact with businesses in Asia quite easily. So, long story short, I think we've all adapted. We have a framework which pushes discussion, which isn't reliant on the face-to-face because as a team, we've all been working together for so long that I think we've been able to come out of this, you know, relatively unscathed, such would Yeah. I can imagine, could again, make it
1: a little more interesting this year. Let's get to the investing side. You know, China is a large part of your investable universe and the aspect of investing in China has been prevalent for institutional investors for some time. What do you see are some of the risks and opportunities in that market?
0: Well, maybe I'll start with opportunity you know I alluded to before, the fact that there are businesses emerging in our universe which are kind of closer to what you see emerging in the growthy side of, say, for example, the s and p world. And I think it would be fair to say that a disproportionate majority of those are coming out of China. A lot of that has to do with the fact that China is a continental sized economy that can fund and create an environment for businesses to grow and thrive, right? It's unlikely that you're going to get a global SaaS champion emerging out of Peru, if only because, you know, the local economy doesn't really support that kind of business, whereas that would certainly be the case in China. And so I think a combination of entrepreneurship and the fact that there is a large local market that creates opportunity and positively or negatively shelters these companies from competition in their early days is creating an opportunity for us to invest in businesses that are very different to what we would have been talking about when we would have been discussing investing in China five, six years ago. So I do think that there are a whole new subset of businesses which will be of interest to investors where I think if you have the ability to play the long game from an investment perspective, there will be a very meaningful return China has been front and center with respect to political noise. Certainly the U.S. has recently gone through a meaningful change in terms of at least the tone that the White House is setting, not necessarily from the fact that I think or we think the new administration will be any more lenient on issues which are of importance to the U.S., but certainly there is hope that there should be a bit more uniformity and process around decisions taken with respect to investors positioning with China. So that should be a positive. But if you ask me to put them on the balance, I would still say that I would expect political noise to remain an issue. So that is a meaningful sensitivity to quite a lot of our clients. And then lastly, I think if you use our own framework to look at China, where we spend quite a lot of time qualitatively separating businesses into what we call premium quality or trading businesses, You know, China underhits its heft. There are less quality or premium businesses in China than their market weight or market value would make you guess that there would be. And I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that equity markets all in all are still newer. The corporate lifespan in China is very new for the private enterprise side. And then on a state on enterprise side, well, it kind of says it on the label, right? It's a state-owned enterprise, so it's unlikely to be a quality or premium business. So from that perspective, if you take a snapshot, China doesn't look great, and that can be a glass-half-full, glass-half-empty thing. We now have enough businesses in China where we can say on a five-year basis, returns on equity, returns on capital, the way the business grows market share. will leave you with many more quality companies than there are today if you just take the static view. And so Again, you could say it's not there yet. You could say it will be. Depends on which side you want to take. I'm going to be more on the optimistic side where I continue to regard China as a very large, fragmented economy. And that means that there would be very meaningful returns to corporate skill in China as businesses that consolidate do so because they serve the relevant consumer better than what used to be the case. And the economics for the winners are very attractive. So I would say... On our forward-looking view, China and India, and India has its own challenges, but China and India remain probably the more relevant and interesting parts of our investable universe. Very helpful on the ground perspective.
1: You alluded earlier, talking about other countries for a moment, to Brazil and South Africa. Are there some areas of EM that make you nervous and keep you up at night? Anything that you feel has been mispriced or misunderstood? I've lost all the hair
0: I used to have, so I guess I consistently worry. But long story short, join the club. Yeah. No, not necessarily, to be honest. I mean, certainly our process is one where we don't take risk at the corporate level. So even though you might be investing in countries where you might have an issue with macro balances or whatever, the businesses we're buying are the best businesses within that space and they don't take balance sheet risk. I still think that the Negative case, if you were going to really put it down, would have to be something geopolitical to do with China. And that's not a base case. That's a tail outcome, but I'm not going to rule it out entirely. Right. But because it's a tail outcome, that's not the sort of thing that keeps me up at night. In the short term, I see a world where there is plenty of liquidity. So businesses are able to stay in business where there's plenty of innovation, where you've gone through a pretty aggressive stress test of banking systems and you found, and I think we talked about this in the last call a year ago, you've found that regulators globally have been up to the task of making sure that financial systems don't fail. And you're now in the slipstream of that reaction, which doesn't tend to be the point in time in which you hit the wall, right? And that's not to say you never hit the wall. That's not to say that you don't have imbalances that you have to fix, as I was alluding to with Brazil but it certainly puts you in a situation where things are relatively benign, and that's effectively what you're seeing in markets as well, right? So, you know, you've kind of gone through the stress. You're now on the other side of that. In the short term, that is reflected in valuations getting higher. In the long term, I think it means that earnings trajectories can go back to growth, ultimately, the EPS growth argument is going to be much more important than the valuation one, which is a short-term thing, but they go hand in hand, at least when you get a change in directionality, as we just have. Great. I'm sure that's helpful to folks online.
1: So excluding China, which EM markets or countries will be developing strong internal consumer demand and which are moving away from your typical commodity-type countries and economies and manufacturing-type economies to a more balanced economy?
0: So I would say India is definitely the larger local consumer play. It's already the case. India is not really export-driven. Obviously, you have an outsourcing sector that kind of constitutes India's exports, but that is a local demand location. You've got Southeast Asia, which I'll take as a block, although obviously there it's Indonesia that although historically has been very commodity dominated, is still growing to become a much more consumer led economy. It's still on a per capita income basis, quite poor. So it will take time for it to emerge as a large absolute market. But there are changes in consumption behaviors and changes in spending, which point to the fact that over time the economy should be much more balanced. For better or worse, those are the faster growing ones. You have seen very meaningful penetration of financial services in places like Brazil and Mexico, which are aiding the transition towards a consumer-led economy, but ultimately in both of those cases, you're still either very much dominated by exports of commodities or finished goods, you know, i.e. NAFTA, from Mexico. So I'd say India and Indonesia and China are certainly kind of at the forefront of what we would think of
1: extending it out a little bit more beyond the basic EM markets, and it's about frontier markets. And if any, are likely to be classified as emerging markets in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. So more mainline emerging markets over that time period. Yeah,
0: possibly. I mean, I'd say places like Vietnam stand a very good chance But I would caution, I mean, if the expectation is that the way that one makes money in EM is because the countries that one invests in graduate from emerging to develop, you know, I'd say that that 20 years I've done this, that would have led you to a relatively disappointing outcome in that very few countries have actually emerged from EM to developed. If those were the goalposts you were using, then you wouldn't be very satisfied. And basically what you'd miss is the fact that over that period of time, per capita incomes in what we call EM has increased very meaningfully. Again, to use the China example, in 20 years, the average income is up anywhere between 15 to 18 times in China. And so clearly, I think what becomes more interesting is to identify businesses that can grow with the consumer. And so, you know, if you take Indonesia, per capita GDP is, I don't know, $2,500, US let's say it depends, again, if you put it in PPP terms, but, you know, you're still talking about a migration as Indonesia gets to, say, actually, I think the more recent number is 4,000. So you take the 4,000, you say, can they get to high levels, which seems like a neighbor, seems like a relatively straightforward thing. And all of a sudden, you find that per capita incomes have doubled. And as per capita incomes double, then obviously, consumption on discretionary increases very meaningfully. Consumption of financial product increases very meaningfully. So, there might be countries which emerge. Again, I'd kind of put Vietnam at the forefront of that. But I think that some of the changes that are occurring in per capita incomes across the existing emerging market asset class are equally as important. I find that people tend to be very, very, very excited about Frontier because they kind of see, you know, quote, unquote, more wood to chop. But there are changes afoot in the existing standard EM standard universe, which are just as interesting, I would say. So they've continued to watch IG. EM
1: credit spreads compressed toward IG corporate spreads. Do you see a world where IG EM is trading on top of IG corporates? I know you're an equity guy, but any thoughts on that segment of the market? Just the risk of moving closer together, perhaps.
0: Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, in dollarized terms, I think that that's always going to be the disadvantage, right? Where you could get spreads. And once you convert it into dollar terms, that's always going to be the catch because- And currencies have historically been a headwind to US dollar returns for both equities or local currency debt. And I think that once you put everything into dollars, you know, if you put that into five year terms, on average, you lose anywhere from one to two and a half percent per year to the currency effect. And that's not every country. Obviously, certain countries have stronger currencies than others, but that's just the benchmark at large. And so from that perspective, if you look at absolute coupons or kind of the rates that you can get from instruments once you put them into dollars, I think it would be very difficult for those to compete with what you can get in a dollarized market. But again, I'm not a debt expert. Yeah. Sorry to throw you that curveball, Leon. But thank you. That was helpful. The question that comes up
1: often is the increased focus on ESG. Do you have a sense for how that's impacted EM asset class and maybe your analysis?
0: Yeah, it hasn't really impacted our analysis much. We've had a focus on ESG for a long time because we tend to be long-term investors. You know, our view is that you can't really be a long-term investor and not think about topics which ultimately determine the duration of the business and the economics of the business you're investing in. And so focusing on topics around ESG has always been important. We've kind of sharpened our toolbox for that, where we have a better framework to compare companies globally and determine best-in-class globally, and we've been engaging a lot. So this is really more, again, kind of sharpening what we're already doing. From an investor perspective, there's huge appetite for ESG. This is most visible in Europe at the moment, where obviously there's a whole host of funds that are dedicated to looking at EM under an ESG angle. Again, it doesn't really change anything that we do. We are what we would call ESG integrated, but I would say it's an important topic. I think, you know, on my mind in the long term is, of course, I manage both institutional assets and pooled vehicles like a 40 act and a cav You know, in my mind, there is a question mark as to how quickly Europe moves towards making C-Cav regulation much more ESG integrated and much tighter and whether eventually 40 act funds are forced to follow. I think at the moment, the answer is no, they're not going to. And, you know, Europe's moving in that direction, but it's not there yet. But I would say it's clearly a very important topic. And it's a big area where we have asked our analysts to dedicate a lot of time, again, both on the engagement with companies and on the rating of businesses. So we know what we're doing and the exposure of any of the businesses that we invest in. Yeah, that's certainly been
1: a very big topic with clients. I have a question about benchmarks, Leon. Kind of generally, what are your thoughts on... How well the indices represent EM, especially in relationship to China? And are there those that you
0: prefer? Could they design better indices, I guess, overall? Depends on whether you have somebody from MSCI on the call. I would say uh, Benchmark <laughs> is a pretty bad representation of the investable opportunity set, especially with respect to China. You know, China, A, is the world's second largest equity market it's miles more liquid than the EM benchmark. The EM benchmark is convoluted in many ways. The largest cap stocks in the small cap benchmark are larger than some of the smaller cap stocks in the standard benchmark, which makes no sense to me. So in a perfect world, I think that we need benchmarks for the measurement of performance, but I think that benchmarks, especially market cap-weighted ones, are particularly good indicators of where investors should keep their capital I understand that Gazprom has a very large market cap. I see no reason at all why you or me or anybody should have any money invested in it. So, you know, a benchmark to me would be as wide as the opportunity set implies. And I like to think of the investable universe that is available to us as anything that's not developed. Right? We do keep things quite separate in terms of EM stocks falling in EM funds and DM stocks falling in DM funds. So to me, the best benchmark would be the widest and the one that effectively represents the opportunity set. You know, there have been other benchmark providers that have tried that historically. They just weren't nearly as successful. I'm much more interested in an opportunity set, you know, by business, wherever it may be, than a country per se. But again, that's more reflective of my investment style. I recognize that other people would be much more focused on the country or regional breakdowns.
1: Great. Another big topic, Leon, has been the debate about growth versus value, where growth is clearly done significantly better. So given the strategies you run, would you describe those as more growth-tilted? Is it something that you look at that concerns you
0: as the markets have been moving around? I think that the way that benchmarks define what's growth and what's value by looking at what falls on the right-hand side if you divide it by price to book and what falls on the left-hand side on the same metric is just an absolute red herring. I think it tells you nothing about whether a business is cheap relative to its intrinsic value or not. It tells you nothing about the prospects for a business. It tells you something about the way that investors are thinking about a business. And so it's not anything I spend any time on because My view is that in the long term, it's the earnings that determine what a business is worth and not what you call it up front. That's point one. Point two, should one outperform versus the other? You know, I kind of look at this and it's as if it's the difference between making a call, if you go to like a car race and making a car on which car is going to be faster versus making a call on... How many people think the first car is going to be faster than it's actually going to be? That's like betting on people versus betting on businesses and betting on people's reactions to something and how much they're willing to value something at, I think is always going to be difficult for me to do versus making a decision around a business's ability to deliver with the underlying view that in the long term, again, it's those earnings which will make the business worth something. So I just couldn't find myself making a call based on valuation alone. I think it's a mistake to spend too much time agonizing over that because in the long term, A, you could have a world where they both outperform, but B, for me, it's impossible to make an investment case about a business just because I think other people would be trading at the wrong multiple and with very little information else around it. A pet peeve of mine, this one, so we could go all day in a beer. Sorry. I was hearing that. (laughs) I actually have
1: a follow-up, though, to that. Given all the stimulus from central banks and governments being pumped in, does that change anything you just talked about?
0: In a way, yes, because you could make a couple of cases here. One would be that liquidity is abundant and interest rates are low. And in that environment, then you are willing to give greater value to cash flows, which are further out which I think you could reasonably then say is part of the reason of why just using a discount rate and looking at valuation has been a problem because arguably you're willing to pay ever larger multiples for businesses which you think will be successful and you don't really want cheap businesses that you think can't be successful or compete. So again, that value growth continuum, if anything, goes further towards businesses that you like or businesses that would traditionally fall in the growth camp. I also mentioned before that businesses aren't going bust, right? And the environment we're in now is one where there is abundant liquidity. So to that effect, if you want to play super deep value, presumably you could in that some businesses were priced to, to go away and they didn't. And though that would explain some of the stocks that have rebounded from ultra low valuations since last March. I think the million dollar question is in the long term where interest rates settle and Certainly, we use a number which is above today's 10 year, and that leads me to conclude that the universe is fairly priced and mildly expensive. But if I suddenly plugged in the 10 years as where rates stay, then the argument would be, well, not so much, right? So it's a bit of a mug's game. You know, I find that if ultimately making a call around the discount rate is going to determine whether it's an investment you're interested in or not, then something's off, right? You should identify businesses that are attractive not solely based on the discount rate, but based on your view of the corporate skill, which is involved. So it matters, but it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, that's
1: good. More about the asset class, Leon. Do you see any major shifts in the asset class
0: over the next two to five years that people on the line might want to be thinking about? Well, I think China will continue to be a larger part of the universe. You know, eventually MSCI will wake up to this fact. I think in the long-term Especially on the institutional side, people are looking to establish China A separate accounts and do that directly. And in the long term, that then creates a question of how EM allocations live alongside China A allocations and whether you get an EMX China type world. You know, I think that these are interesting questions, but they're not kind of in the now just yet. The second is this idea that you're going to get a much growthier, much tech-heavy universe. Again, you look at the top five, top ten stocks in our asset class today; they're much more of that than would have been the case ten years ago. But I do think that the world is going to flesh out much more in a growthy and tech-heavy way. I think that's attractive. I think that's a good outcome for EM. I think it keeps EM much more relevant than would be the case if all we still had to offer were we kind of washed-out SOEs and commodity companies. Great. So, Leon, thank you for those insightful
1: answers.
2: For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations, the views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, Credit and accounting implications, and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global, slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities, in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe Grave R L, in Asia Pacific, APOC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association. Type 2 Financial Instruments Firm's Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth. By J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55,143,832,080, AFSL 376,919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.